The opinions expressed on this show are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily represent those of Funeral Radio's management or sponsors. Welcome to the Director's Exchange, commentary from leading funeral industry analysts and practitioners. Brought to you by Funeral Radio. And now your host, Raymond Akins. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Director's Exchange. I'm your host moderator, Ray Akins, and we want to say thank you for joining us for this morning's session. Of course, uh, as always, we want to give a shout-out to our people at FuneralRadio.com who make all of this possible. Thank you so much. Now, I'm really excited about today's program. Our guest is a first-generation funeral director, and he also happens to be the author of a book, which uh, has been claimed to introduce into the field of thanatology what's being called a new operating model for the future of our industry. It's been very well received. And I'm talking, of course, about none other than Carl Jennings, who also is the founder and CEO of the Rangers Academy. Now, uh, Carl, along with his partner, Todd Borek, also a first-generation funeral director, operates from four uh, locations uh, situated in the state of Michigan. They started out as a single facility, but in the year 2000, you acquired three additional firms within the span of a seven-week period. Uh, that's another story in and of itself, like yeah, how did you do that? Uh, in, but in the years that followed the acquisition, their call volume has practically doubled. And I think what's important to note in this situation is that all this growth occurred during a time when uh, the volume of most establishments in our business has been going through a kind of a flat to uh, negative trend in growth. Uh, today, Borak and Jennings, that's the name of their firm, uh, serves over 400 families a year, and they seem to be bucking the trend in two important areas. Uh, direct cremation calls have uh, fallen to within the single-digit range, and the margin for the cost of goods sold has been cut by more than 50%, while their fees or uh, the service fees from revenues have doubled. We'll get into that financial aspect this uh, interview if we have time. But here's a point to, I think, note. Each of their properties is located, it's in a small market, it's in a state where uh, there is a situation of a struggling economy, yet none of their businesses use price discounting as a strategy for gaining greater market share position. So today we're going to explore how this firm has accomplished that quality of achievement. And we'll also be introduced to Carl's theory of acute loss management. And that's a field uh, which is detailed in the book he wrote called When We Must Say Farewell. Uh, please join me in welcoming onto the show Mr. Carl Jennings. Carl, good morning. Good morning, Ray. It's great to be with you today. Here, let me start out with a uh, kind of question uh so we'll all get quickly onto the same page now not none of us in this business is going to argue uh, uh with the premise that our industry is at a key juncture in this time and face or place but you believe that for the industry as a whole that we professionals are being called to take what we intuitively know and expand that awareness to new levels of interaction with our customers. Would that be correct? I think that's a fair characterization. I'm not sure exactly how many people 
would understand that, but I, I just think there's such a wealth of knowledge based on uh, life experiences and also experiences that the, the average funeral director has had over the course of their life that if they could tap into successfully would be a great value to their uh, the families that they're serving. And this, this knowledge that we're talking about goes well beyond an understanding of how to properly manage details and logistics. So, yes, I think that's fair. Okay. So uh, I guess uh, at stake then is the issue of how we make sense of what we're dealing with in today's marketplace. Uh, the numbers indicate, for example, as I said earlier, and I don't think anybody's going to argue, uh, that volume growth has uh, been flat, revenues are down, and this may be an indication that our customers are trying to send us a message. Uh, I think that's a very fair statement, and it's a message they've been trying to send for an exceptionally long time, and we've been slow to warm to. But I think a, kind of a simple way of thinking about it is that while what the, commu- the, the customer communicates to us about what it is they want and that that has caused for many to see the customer in a much more complex way, the reality is, is that human need around loss really hasn't changed and won't change. And so the question we have to look at is really whether or not the form and structure of how we're presenting ourselves to families is a useful model anymore, as opposed to whether or not people actually need um, something that will help them through this period that we call the acute loss period that would, that would help them begin their journey to a healthy grief experience. And, and I don't think there's anybody that would argue that there are some essential steps that need to be taken through that early period following loss that make a big difference in the outcome of people's grief experience. And so sometimes I like to say, Ray, and I, I know we've, we've chatted about this, but sometimes I, I'd like to say, you know, if, if we leveled all of the existing funeral homes in the country and they literally went goodbye overnight, something would emerge within those communities to replace um, and to serve the needs that are in that community. And that focus would be on how do we help the living practically begin to navigate the acute loss period and then begin a healthy experience towards grief. When we speak to that and to our families, um, any sense of irrelevancy, any sense of tension or suspicion about our our intent uh, and what we were trying to accomplish dissipates, and they begin to open up not only about what they're feeling in the moment, but often many times experiences they've had in the past that maybe weren't the healthiest, and we begin to see that we can have a real meaningful role in helping them learn about the role that loss can play in their life. I've got to tell you, Ray, it's been phenomenally exciting to see that we can assume this role and that people, our clients, not only will respect it, but they desire it. It's been, it's been life-changing and career-changing for us as we've been doing it over the last 10 to 12 years. Well, you know, I think there's a, a context uh, involved also, and uh, 
again, my dad was a funeral director, and I think I shared with you the story uh, at the time my mother passed, how uh, my father, uh, with all his experience, what he did was basically arrange for a traditional funeral. Uh, the uh, He was an industry professional, all right? But right, yep. What has caused, in your opinion, people to be more expressive, to go more inside themselves, and to want to create something that is close to a true celebration of life? Well, I think that, um, first of all, I think what you're looking for initially is that our client families spend virtually no time thinking about what they should do or what they want to do or what they're going to need at the time they lose someone they love. And so because the, the public as a whole spends virtually no time preparing themselves emotionally, you know, intellectually, spiritually for uh, the death of a loved one, and, and who wants to when they're still with you? You want to embrace their life. But I think the the tradition of the past was very unsatisfactory um, for people as, as we begin to emerge through the middle of the last century. And, and I could go into a lot of reasons for that. But I think the big lesson for funeral service in this is what we, what we were selling. The customer was not connecting the dots between what it was they needed at the time of loss and what they were getting from us at the time of loss. And that disconnect continued to grow and grow, initially expressing itself through direct cremation and, and not wanting to have any sort of funeral service, and then eventually trying and beginning to morph to say that's unsatisfactory too. What is it that we can do to create a more meaningful experience around the loss of a loved one? And too often, the cart has been leading the horse around. In other words, our clients have been defining the nature of their interaction with us. Because once we fell out of that more traditional model, we did not have a professional identity that said, here is the reason why we exist that transcends the method or form by which people go through loss. And so, you know, your father did what he knew to do, and in that, your family may have had a, a satisfactory experience and they may not have. Um, but what we can say is the trends of the last three to four decades is without question, people not only found what we did maybe extraordinarily emotionally challenging, but also too often empty of something that was nurturing to them. And otherwise, I always try to say, if, you know, people wouldn't reject what we're doing if they actually found value in it, right? Nobody does that. Of course. So the, the challenge is for us to say is that is, have the needs around human loss changed or is the form by which we deliver it, has that changed? And I think, you know, we could talk at length about trends within generations and within the demographic of the United States related to values and their uh, connection to their religious institutions, et cetera. All of that is diagnosing 
pretty much what is known. The question really before us today is how do we move from what is known into a place of being relevant when the human need around loss really hasn't changed. Okay, which uh, I think we're establishing now a basis for going forward because uh, next I want to get into your uh, the details of your theory of acute loss management. Uh, but bef- before doing that, I'm going to uh, I share with you, I think, three quotes I took from recent statements uh, when I say that in in the last few years. And we're going to go deeper into this subject of grief and what uh, you might say consumers are demanding and what funeral directors are probably best positioned to facilitate. So this is a win-win situation for all parties involved. But let me just start out in the general area of grief. And here I'm going to read a quote. It says that in the case of grief, it doesn't matter if it's the loss of a, a person, a job, a relationship, or thousands of other ways in which we experience and what the author calls as versions of death. He says that too often we can end up wallowing in our grief. But at some point, if we don't get the information that's coming from that feeling space, something like grief or anxiety can turn on itself and become an endless story of suffering. Anything you want to add to that to... Uh, uh, to in your words, do you, do you get what this person is, is saying? Well, there's no question that that's, a, that's an incredibly accurate observation. And unfortunately, um, in, in our society today, when we have those moments of job loss and or divorce and or for many of the dreams of a hope for a future that I think we've really been dealing with uh, for the baby boom generation uh, since 2007 and eight where they've really had a sense that the dreams that they had were not going to be fulfilled because of the economic challenges we've been in front of. There's been loss, loss upon loss upon loss um, that we've faced as a country. And each one of those losses provides a moment, a moment that reveals something inside of us. And, and in that moment, you know, we talk about the honest, that honest moment. It reveals to us the depth of the substance of the choices we've made in life, our values, and it gives us a moment to pause and reflect, to say, this loss and the pain that it's causing, um, is, it, uh, uh, is this loss a reflection of choices that I believe in or just things that I've done because I, I haven't got a, even a lot of thought or, or depth of thought to it. Is it. Has my life been about managing the trivial or investing in the significant and in the important? And no matter what kind of loss experience we have, we have those, that moment where we have to honestly look at ourselves in the situation, and we have a choice to make in that moment. And this is why loss for so many is life-changing and, frankly, for also many, it is a moment where they may become more handicapped because they can't be honest with themselves um, in facing the truth of the circumstance they're in or the reality of the choices they've made. And I think death in particular, the death of a loved one, is such an opportunity for a life-changing moment for people. 
for them to pause and to reflect on the significance of what's taken place and to do their own sense of life review, that as, as a profession, we want to help people. We want to help people nurture that moment for themselves and for others. And I think if we can do that, if we can help them transition, because I think it, at the very core, this is the conversation people try to avoid when they minimize ritual around losses. I don't want to have to face the ultimate reality of life. Because under the spectrum, or the, I'm sorry, under the lens of facing the ultimate reality of life, our life can look trivial. Our life can look insignificant. And it may cause us a great deal of internal discomfort along with the grief we feel with the loss that's taken place. So, Ray, I guess what I'm trying to say is, as we look at the way the industry has uh, presented itself in form, that form has been to provide products and services for the dead and compassionately care for the living by managing logistics and details. Our role, I believe, is most profound when we're able to speak into that moment of the acute loss and help them create a structure, help the family create a structure by which they can become intentional in addressing their emotional, relational, and spiritual needs and taking the time to nurture those honest moments as we speak, see them in the lives of others, as we share stories with those who cared about our loved one, and as we pause and reflect about the the impact of the influence our loved one had on our lives. I think that quote that you've given is right at the essence of what's transpiring in the lives of people. And our opportunity is to help nurture that by giving them the information, but also a structure that allows them to see themselves in that journey and to be able to nurture that journey. Okay. I'm going to offer uh, uh, quote number two. And uh, this is from Anne-Marie Cockburn, and this was a woman who in uh, July of uh, 2013, she lost her 15-year-old daughter. She was a single parent uh, uh, mom, uh, and she lost her 15-year-old daughter in a tragic uh, circumstance. But she was also, she also happened to be a writer, and she wrote a book, it's called 5,742 Days. And what that means is that within hours after the loss of her daughter, she began to write down her feelings. And I'm going to just uh, share with you one quote. This was an entry in her diary uh, shortly after the death. And she starts out, she says, So I did what I needed to do today. I went online and this is very interesting, I went online and started looking at coffins. She asked herself, what would my daughter like? What would my daughter choose? Then she says, all of a sudden, the true meaning of life had hit her like a bolt of lightning, and the previous version of herself, it now seemed trivial. She thought that how tragic it was that this death had to be the thing that shook her out of her artificial world and ushered her into uh, bring to the surface a truer version of herself. Powerful. Yes, it is. 
And I'm going to introduce one more, and then let's talk about acute loss management. This is uh, a quote from a, a person, a, a, a senior, who lost his wife uh, of you know many years. And he says, I've grown up a lot over the past few weeks. It's not that I wasn't grown up before. It's just that I'm now taking myself a lot more serious. He goes on, but I think this indicates death or loss is an opportunity for us to go on a different kind of a journey. Is that what acute loss management strives to awaken in our awareness? There's no question. I think the, the both of these quotes and both of these people's experience with loss um, is kind of the unspoken narrative of any really thinking person's experience with the death of a loved one. Um, and I say thinking person, not to be condescending, um, but if you're thoughtful, if you're, if, if you're considerate about the choices that you make in life, if, if you are like many of us, recognize that both your time and energy is limited and how you invest it matters and, is, and are ultimately going to be the way that you judge your life. Um, what we have happened in these moments of, you know, crises, these, these emotional crises that are caused by the death of a loved one or job loss or whatever it might be, it's just this moment where the, the intense um, glare of the honesty um, that is, is generated uh, in those moments makes the selfish choices of life, the trivial and insignificant um, things that we do that in the end really don't matter, we, we feel the weight and the burden of those things uh, in, a, in a really profound way. And, and it's in that moment that we have to ask the question, do I have the courage to live differently? And often it takes the death of a loved one for us to find that courage. Before we go much more deeply into the kind of human psychology of loss and death, what we're talking about in this is that we have a very meaningful role to play in helping facilitate the individual journey of every single family and every single person in that family that we work with. And we, we are there to provide a construct and the information so that they can begin this journey. What you're hearing are expressions, very honest expressions, about how people's lives were changed by the loss of a loved one. Our job isn't to go deeply into those narratives with them and to walk deeply into those narratives. Our job is to facilitate and provide both the education and services that help nurture the development of their own narrative as they find their voice in the midst of their own grief. And that's why we've identified this period of time between the event of death and the onset of grief as the acute loss period. And we believe that there are habits and behaviors when introduced during this period of time in an intentional way that can help nurture the kind of experiences that you're, you see expressed in these quotes. Okay, uh, this calls for a story. Uh, I, I want to okay. put you on the spot. 
Uh, I applaud having uh, really gone through your uh, your text, uh, When We Must Say Farewell. Uh, it's full of what I would characterize as periods of acute observation. Now, I think everyone will identify, and if you will, can you just quickly take me through your story that, that led you to delve deeper into this field? You're a funeral director. You have services. Uh, yet, was there a sense of uncomfortableness you felt as, as the uh, uh, service came to a close that you feel we just really didn't hit the mark, although there may have been smiles and people seemed okay with the uh, way the the program progressed? Well, I think I think what happened for us and what happened for me personally is that I had from the very beginning of my career, which started in the early 1980s, a sense that the, the industry had missed the mark. And, and I, I sensed that in mortuary school. I didn't know what the mark was to hit, but I, I really had a strong sense that they'd missed the mark, that, that compassionately managing logistics and details for families was, was good, but it wasn't the best role that a funeral director could play. And the emphasis on merchandising and things like that seemed to um, rob us of the chance to play a more um, active role uh, in the one-on-one -on -one engagement of the family related to their experience. And so that's kind of the context that I came into, and I wrestled with that for many years in my career. And then as I became an owner and I began to look at um, the arrangement conference and I had some ability to control the destination of that, I realized that we were really incapacitated in communicating well with the direct cremation client and that when we tried to do an options-based presentation, it, it still just seemed, like, number one, I think it created more confusion for many people, but it still seemed like we were trying to package the same old thing in a different way. And it didn't resonate with myself, and I could see it wasn't resonating with the customer. And so I, I went, I began my journey by uh, talking to some people outside of the industry, one of whom recommended a book called The Experience Economy. And it was when I began reading that book, and as I read about the progression of an industry from a, um, a commodity base to product to service to experiences and uh, then ultimately what they call transformational experiences, um, and that progression being what it is that people valued, I, I started seeing such a clear map of what our, our profession has gone through. But we got stuck as a service sector business. And this, at the time I was reading this, and even to this day, so few people are really focusing on creating meaningful and memorable experiences, you know, which is the next box up. But the one that captivated me, and, and, I, and this kind of comes full circle then, the one that really captivated, captivated me and was kind of my eureka moment was when I was reading about transformational experiences in this book. And I realized that the, the, the death of a loved one is a life-changing experience. Yes. And simultaneously to reading this book, not simultaneously, but shortly after I'd been reading this book, um, as I detail in the book I've written, um, you know, September 11th of 2001 happened. 
And, and as I was trying to detail out what would be the best experience for our families prior to September 11th, I was detailing out how to create the very best experience I could, have, could for our families. When September 11th happened, um, and upon reflecting on how I saw both a nation and my local community and my own family respond to that, I saw so many parallels between that and what I'd been witnessing in the families we'd been serving for 20 years. I saw so many parallels that all, there was this immense, unmistakable rhythm that emerged out of that. And as I, and I, as I spent time developing it, that's how we began to map out the initial phase of this life-changing experience that we have, that transformational experience. And it really began to, that was the beginning of what we call the acute loss period now, but it was the beginning of both formulating the ideas and beginning to do the research behind it. For me, that was the progression, a growing sense of irrelevance, a growing sense of disconnect, a growing sense that we were repackaging the same thing in a different way, and it was still not creating an authentic conversation with our client. And for me, if you can't have an authentic conversation at the time of death with the people you're serving, you're really doing them an injustice, and in the end, you'll do your business an injustice. Okay. Carl, I'm going, to, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to try and make a symbolic representation of everything you just said. Okay. And, uh, and what, what reminds, what I'm called to recall is the uh, New Yorker magazine in the current issue. There's a, and I like our listeners to kind of picture this, there's a couple seated at a table in the restaurant and uh, apparently, after some time, they still haven't made up their mind. And the waiter walks up and says, you know, you, know, you guys are taking too long. I'm going to you know, just take your menu away from you. But in terms of comparing that to, let's say, uh, funeral arrangements, you're saying the customer is just given a menu and the family has to pick. And... The waiter, in this case, my analogy would be the funeral director, has the opportunity in that space to inquire uh, as to their feelings and you know what it is, their, uh, the occasion, what they're seeking to get out of it. Would that be fair? Well, I think your illustration's a really interesting one because I would say that the current status, not to get sidetracked, but just think about this for a second in your, the current illustration you're using, the, the current status of most arrangers is they are the waiter yes. who asks the customer, how can I help you? But they've never given the customer a menu. Ah, okay, okay. In other words, we sit down and we assume they know what it is. They, we, they, we assume they know not only uh, what it is they need or what it is they need and what it is they want. Okay. We make that assumption and... Then, based on what they say, the customer says, I want something, then we begin to describe what possible ways they could get what it is they're looking for. Mm -hmm. And so this is almost the menulist restaurant in, in that exercise. And the way that you're speaking of it in an options-based approach, what occurred to me when you were speaking of that is that our customers are coming in and we're not giving them a menu before we ask them what it is they want. They make a declarative, and therefore 
they define the nature of what's taking place based on their knowledge. We want to define the nature of what's taking place on the basis of what we know will be beneficial to them. Okay, I'm going to ask, just, just add one other thing, and maybe you can clarify that, because we, we give them a general price list. Uh, you know, we, get, we give them the, the merchandise selection list, and we put all of that in front of them. And I believe you've been... Uh, uh, quoted in the past of saying, you know, they're giving, uh, they're given all this information, but that's not what they're really looking for. Well, that's exactly it. It's irrelevant. It's it's a confusing uh, document. I know it was intended to empower consumers, uh, but it's a, it's a confusing document. And the real tragedy of that document is there is not one thing on that list of mandated items on our GPL that the customer connects uh, the dots between what it is they're paying and what it is they're personally going to receive from the experience. If you look at our GPL, it is, uh, it's a very uh, both task-centered uh, list of things the funeral director and administrative staff do, uh, what we do with the remains, and then we rent buildings, we rent uh, facilities, and we, we prepare you know, remains. In nowhere, you'd have to be a pretty sophisticated consumer to try to figure out how that connects with what it is you need at the time of loss. And by the way, I don't think there's anybody out there that wants to be that sophisticated. (laughs) (laughs) Back to acute loss management. Uh, Was the outcome of your work and investigation in that area, is that what led to the founding of the Arrangers Academy? Absolutely. What we did, and uh, Ray, I know when we've spoke previously, I told you my wife has her uh, master's degree in social work and as a child and family therapist. And, you know, one of the things I didn't tell you in the development of this is that we had been looking for the psychosocial pattern around loss. Yes. and, And we'd been looking into the family dynamics and different items as we were trying to understand who the, the modern customer was. And so as we were looking for that, and then this issue around September 11th happened, what we first started to do in our, in our own funeral homes was just to begin to talk with people about our observations related to September 11th through the grid of what we call the seven phases of the acute loss period and how they interact with attending to and caring for our emotional, relational, and spiritual needs. And we did this slowly but surely. First, we talked about three of the phases, then we talked about five of the phases, and eventually we talked about all seven. And we continued to develop that and develop it. We did a lot of public speaking, but we also did a lot of research with families and also people in our community to continue to test this information to see if it rang true, both with those people who were in the moment of grief, but also then with those who, um, um, you know, weren't in the in the immediate uh, experience of loss, we also uh, uh, were asked to present at a graduate school here, a social work graduate school, and we had the opportunity to interact um, with several academics around the topic that we've been developing, and so we we really attempted through this period of time to take our own practical knowledge and test it against some solid uh, psychosocial theory. Yes. Um, and 
and see if there was a pattern that um, was a believable pattern to people across the spectrum of life experience. And at literally every single point of interaction, there were jaw-dropping moments with people that said, wow, you have just described something that is not only powerful to know, but resonates with what our experience should have been and or and, and needs to be. And so the more obviously we did that, we started gaining confidence just in ourselves and presenting to families. And as we started talking with some of our local colleagues here about what we were doing, they said, tell us more. <laughs> and we began to realize that this really was the center issue that's crippled our profession for the better part of 40 years. And that is we have not had a, a definable purpose um, and professional identity related to how to care for the family and or a palliative care model by which to operate from that could be useful regardless of people buried or cremated or anatomically donated their loved one. Well, uh, maybe what you're getting at is that uh, the presumption in many cases at the time of uh, loss is that uh, families have to take care of business of making uh, funeral arrangements, and that may be foremost on their mind, but I think you're kind of indicating at the core is perhaps it could be an unarticulated or unrecognized need that what they're really seeking is an emotional uh, connection uh, to navigate their way properly through this experience of loss. Now, if, let, me, let me suggest one other thing. Yes, sir. Have you ever in your life had to do something you didn't want to do and didn't know why you were doing it? Yeah, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I when can... you just talked about the logistical and they had all of these tasks and things that they have to do, so to speak, um, it reminds me of you know watching my kids out in the in the garden weeding, you know, and or when they're, they're engaging, you know, algebra and, and their homework, they're doing it because they know they have to, yes. but they really don't know why. And, and man, why is, when you do something and you don't know, I'm sorry, when you do something that's hard and you don't know why, it becomes, you know, exponentially harder to do it. What we found in, in helping people understand why, they needed to do something to help themselves and others around the loss of their loved one, the how and the what became much simpler. But until we were able to explain the why, the how and the what was the thing that was debated ad nauseum because they did not know why to do it. They had no standard by which to assess the decision-making that they were going through. So consequently, the decision-making process was simply left up up to the opinion of whoever happened to be in the room, and if they disagreed, we would have to facilitate that conflict. And too often, our opinion wasn't viewed as an expert opinion, but just another opinion in the room. And so what we found in, the, in taking this approach of a teaching is that instead of putting people in a position of doing something, they weren't sure why they were doing it, we teach the why and that has simplified dramatically the conversation of what and how we were going to do it afterwards. 
People, at this time, we'd like to take just a brief uh, commercial break. We want to share with you a message from our sponsors, and as soon as that's over, we'll get right back into this, this discussion. Hello, this is Tyler Fraser, founder of Funeral Radio. When I'm not working with the talented hosts here at Funeral Radio, I'm working with funeral homes to fill their cremation urn needs at UPD Urns. I'd like to introduce you to the UPD Urn Store. It's an e-commerce store that can integrate with any website. Processes earn orders that are totally secure, and there's no charge to set it up. Learn more at updearns.com store. Hi, this is Robin Heppel, and I hope you're enjoying all the great information from Funeral Radio. I have been helping funeral homes get more calls and increase their averages for the past decade, and we have achieved this by helping their websites rank higher, making their Google ads perform better, and increasing their online reputation. As a listener to Funeral Radio, I would like to offer you a free Google and online market analysis for your funeral home. To claim this, go to funeralfutures.com forward slash funeral radio audit. Thanks for listening. This is Robin Heppel. This is Cindy Neely Spence, your host for Make Ceremony Matter More. On this program, I talk shop with life cycle celebrants about their experiences creating unique ceremonies. Our show demonstrates how end-of-life ceremonies can be different. It highlights unique approaches to meeting what many funeral industry clients are seeking. Please join us to learn how to make ceremony matter more for your clients, only on Funeral Radio. Hello, this is Chris Gordon from A Simple Thank You, the originators of Digital Registry. Our service allows us, or the funeral home, to print out a customized guest book as well as acknowledgement cards that include addressing the envelopes to and from. This saves the family hours of time trying to decipher through illegible handwriting left by many guests. Visit our website, asimplethankyoufuneral.com, and see what funeral directors and families are saying about a simple thank you's digital registry service. Now, Carl, the Arrangers Academy was an outcome of your experience in investigating the field of acute loss management. Now, I'm going to ask you specific questions about that, but before doing that, I want to, if there are any skeptics out there listening, uh, you seem to have hard evidence that this program is effective. Can you share some of your uh, results in the aftermath of having instituted this process? Uh, Ray, I think that, uh, first of all, um, we, we are in a, a profession um, of of people who, for the better part of 25 years, have been afraid. And they've been afraid because whether it's been a supplier or whoever it might have been, uh, a consultant, um, they have been inundated with what we would call, you know, a magic bullet here. This this will be the best thing for your business since, you know, sliced bread. And what we saw is, and what we see is, there's just a fatigue out there of people who have tried things over and over and over, tried new things, and it hasn't, it hasn't turned their business around. It hasn't addressed the primary and biggest challenge they have. So number one, I want you to know, I think this kind of overarching fatigue is out there related to anybody who introduces anything new into the marketplace. I think secondly, 
we're going into what Alan Creedy, and I love this, uh, refers to as the Holy of Holies. Uh, every single funeral director I've ever met thought that they were God's gift to the arrangement room. And I suppose I probably sound like that to many of them. Um, but when you ask them if they could unwrap God's gift for the rest of us to understand what it is they were doing, they struggled with it. They just had this gift and they knew how to speak, quote unquote, to their families. And so, and their market and, and whatever that might mean. And so I think skepticism as a rule comes from both a place of fear of being exposed, but also a place of fatigue. Um, and so to be candid with you, prior to our unpacking what we've done here, learning it and finding out how effective it is, I would have I, I would have had a skeptic's eye as well. And so I, I completely relate to, um, if you will, critics or skeptics. I do think that because of the fear um, and the fatigue, that at times there's a lack of energy. And so, and sometimes it's just a self-defensive mechanism that, that says, oh, I can't do that. that but they don't know what they're talking about. And the fact of the matter is, is we've seen that and we've heard it. Those people where we haven't heard it, though, are from the people who have gone from our training through our training and, and what we've heard from the people who've gone through our training is this has not only been uh, profound for me as a professional but it's been profound for me as a, a person because what we've done is we've we've helped them many people find the purpose and meaning in the job that they thought they were coming into rather than the the structure that they had to function in for years and years and years and so in many ways, we've renewed vitality and hope for those who have, have gone through our training. Um, and I think that that's, that's probably the most rewarding part of the work that we're doing, is to see um, professional people who have been discouraged and frustrated drawing on their years of experience within the construct of our, our um our content and the you know the knowledge of the acute loss period and finding their own voice and communicating with their families in, in a profound and effective way. So, you know, I think you're always going to have critics. Um, what I will tell you is uh, the numbers back up what we're talking about because people who passionately believe in what they're doing when given a voice will naturally uh, be more convincing uh, of what it is they do and subsequently you know and I hate to speak of this in strictly crass terms sales wise but we see anywhere from a 20 to 30 percent jump in the revenue from the for the cremation clients served by our client firms sure. and over the course of a three to four year period many times 40 to 50 percent and um, that's how we reconstruct relevance as we're reconstructing our profitability. Well, two things I want to interject real quick. Uh, number one is your argument is that the training pays for itself. Number two is something that really struck me, you said the other day. You had a 24-year-old arranger uh, 
in a conference with the family and they were uh, basking in the experience. Now, that means that uh, age specifics don't play that much a role or years of experience. It is how you really facilitate the process. Well, and I think any given person has will have an, uh, a talent that they're going to bring in an experience, right? Talent and experience. Okay. And and so our job then is to provide training for for their talent and experience. And sometimes the experience of the people who've been in the business for years is um, is a powerful tool for them embracing what we're teaching. And sometimes it's an obstacle because they're they're trying to integrate and or they're struggling. Uh, with whether or not they can take an active teaching role with families. With our younger arrangers, there is no obstacle with that. Um, matter of fact, uh, we have three young arrangers on our staff, all 30 years or, or under, uh, all of which who have come to us in the last two years. And each one of them, if they were on the phone with you here, would say when they saw the training, this is after they've been through mortuary school, when they saw the training, they identified it as the purpose that they wanted to give their life to professionally. And consequently, they're hungry to learn, they're hungry to understand applications, and they're hungry to sit down just like other professional colleagues do in other professions. They're, they're, they're hungry to sit down within their team setting and talk about their experiences with families in the context of the acute loss period. And that's another place for growth and development. So it's, it's, uh, it's been an, and it is an exciting thing to see happen. It's not just happened here. We've seen that happen with our client firms that we've worked with now through the years as well. Now, does this apply to uh, uh, the pre-need market, uh, aftercare market? The, there's no question. Um, the, the total acute loss management model has to, to cover the full width of what it is we do, right? And so in the pre-planning model, we teach about the acute loss period. And families make decisions um, about uh, how they're going to help their family through that process. It's no longer about whether they're going to bury or cremate, which obviously is one of the details we have to know. But it is what kind of plan are they going to have in place? the day they are no longer there to help those they care about begin the healing process. And we teach the seven phases of the acute loss period. And what's really significant about this, Ray, is that in the pre-need environment, they're not under emotional duress like they are in the at-need environment. And their receptivity to the information is even stronger. And in this way, they're connecting the decision-making directly to how they're helping their family, not just by taking care of details and having all of their wishes recorded, but they're literally connecting the dots between how these decisions and planning for a time and a place for these things to happen will impact their family in this acute loss period. Um, as such, we actually see more success um, in the, the pre-need uh, side of this than we have experienced in the at-need side of it, and it's been transformational for us in the at-need. Excellent. What about the aftercare? In aftercare, we, with the acute loss management model, we really identify three different periods and program around those three. 
we talk about the entering into grief phase, the experiencing grief phase, and then last but not least, the emerging from grief. And we provide programming and support, some of which we do internally, some of which we use resources within our community to provide. But it is part of that continuum of care that we initiate through the acute loss period and then with the onset of grief. Oh, okay. Uh, I think at this time, uh, I apologize, I didn't mention this before, but of course, the Rangers Academy has a website on the internet. Can you please give uh, our listeners uh, the instructions as to how to find that site? Actually, it's just Google Arrangers Academy mm-hmm. or go to www.arrangersacademy.com. Okay. And um, the training schedule, uh, there is a, uh, an outline uh, for the training. And I guess uh, the, first, the, the first, it's a three-part, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, a three, three-part approach and you began with a discussion on the experience economy, and I, I count. Well, let me go. Let me just summarize this real quickly. You have a a, a topic called the scale of economic progression, the six disconnects. I don't know if that relates to the other research you were doing along with your wife in the acute loss management discovery period. Uh, there's this topic called the decline, the eureka moment, the unguarded moment, the challenge, the opportunity, the solution, and finally, the goal. Uh, Peter Drucker. Uh, you're familiar with Peter Drucker. Oh, the management guru? You got it. Absolutely. Um, he he really, uh, that was another powerful book for me, but there's five questions that he said every organization business has to ask. The first is, what is your mission? Second is, who is your customer? The third is, what does the customer value? The fourth is, what are your results? And the fifth is, what is your plan? And what we want to do in the training period, when when our um, uh, the two-day training that we offer, is to fully unpack those first three questions and in doing so equip um, the people who come to our training the firms that we come with with our to our training with a plan that they can go back and find measurable results from and so that that's the the grid by which I look at this what is your mission who is your customer and what do they value well if you ask the average funeral director today who's the customer you ask 100 funeral homeowners, you're going to get 100 different answers, right? Right. Then if you ask, ask them a more specific question of, tell me about your customer. Well, I don't really know. They could want any number of things, right? And, so, and then you ask the question, well, what is it that your customer really values? And that depends on the customer, right? And, and so when, when we look at this, we literally say, here's who your customer is. Let's take the complexity out of this. What they're asking for is the external expression of what they perceive they want, but it often is not connected to what it is they need, and what they need has not changed, will not change, because it's the human experience around loss. So who's your customer? 
we address first, what does that customer value? Again, a complex question for most funeral directors today, a question that they will not even enter into for many in their diagnostic process with a family, and that's why they simply ask the question, how can I help you, instead of saying, here's how I can help you. And the, the fact of the matter is, is those three questions, if clearly understood and clearly defined, um, provide the model for moving forward. And so I feel like one of the things that I need to do with every client that comes through the Arrangers Academy is first to debunk and then demystify who the, the modern customer is because we're all garbaged up in our brains about that. Then, after I've debunked and demystified it, I have to then reconstruct and show them through sound theory, through sound principles, who the customer really is, and then how we can most effectively reach that customer to make a good decision on behalf of themselves and their family. And so that's the construct of the two-day training with, with hopefully when they leave our training, um, they are able to, because we do a lot of role-playing in the second half of the second day um, in the presentation of the acute loss period. Prior to coming to training, they spend a, they're, they're spending time working through a survey that we send them about their personal loss narrative because ultimately they have to draw on their professional and their personal experience to be able to integrate it with the knowledge that we're going to provide through the acute loss period. When they do that, presenting becomes, um, in many ways, an effortless task. You know, I want to be careful not to leave out another component of the uh, your approach, and that is you don't literally transform anyone's uh, uh, ideas about this process in a course of two days. Actually, the program is followed up by a year-long uh, weekly uh, exercise and reflection. Is that correct? How yeah, we send go? out a we send out a weekly training video, um, and it is to continue to unpack and expand on the information that they were provided in the two-day period. Um, this has been an evolution over time. First started in our own firm as we saw the questions that were emerging and things we needed to continue to um, expand upon and, and react to from our own staff. And then as we started teaching others, again, and we expanded on it based on that. We also send out several sample copies of um, arrangements being made. And we record our arrangements and we ask permission from our families to be able to use them for training purposes. And by the way, not to ha take a side note, when we first asked somebody that, we were terrified. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we thought they, they would be insulted, angry, whatever. I, I, I want you to hear this. In 10 years we've been doing it, we've had one family ask us to turn the camera off. Really? If you had asked me at the beginning of this, I would have told you maybe 40, 50% would ask. Sure, sure. Off, right? And, and yet, at no point... we have we encountered resistance there? That's just one of those things that when I tell you our brain's all garbaged up with ideas of who our customer is, Yes. you know, here, never even a hesitation. And so we've, we've developed a series of these so that they can see different people doing the presentation because our ultimate goal isn't to program people. Our ultimate goal 
is to help educate them so they can find their own voice within the content of our of our material because when they find their own voice that is the only way that they will come across as authentic and compelling to the people they're speaking to if they try to memorize scripts or they try to you know work within a rigid presentation there will be no personal or emotional connection with their client it's when they're willing to find their own voice in the in communicating that it becomes powerful that's ultimately my goal is to help them find their voice within our content wow you know uh carl the, the first hour is up already and i'm just afraid uh that <laughs> that we've only touched the the proverbial tip of the iceberg but our own uh, analytics suggests that keeping folk engaged over an hour's period of time is is a pretty daunting task. So to the extent we've had uh, listeners engaged for the full course of this hour, I, I, there's a possibility of us having made a breakthrough. But we're going to uh, cover our behinds also, and I'm going to try and flesh this out. This is very impromptu. But uh, you've agreed in principle to uh, produce uh, more about the subject of uh, acute loss management for funeral radio. Uh, we will have uh, more segments in the uh, upcoming weeks, and they will be maybe shorter uh, snippets wherein we discuss a particular topic and offer it for consideration uh, on the part of our listeners. Also, I, I'm going to invite folk to maybe address questions, and we'll use this as a medium for uh, translating inquiries uh, to your attention where you can address those also. That'd be, that would be fantastic. Okay. Uh, I, 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 it's, I think uh, questions coming from the listeners um, is the most... Um, uh, the best way to relevantly speak to where they're at. Sure. Um, and, and so I'm completely supportive and interested in that. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, I'm just about ready to wrap up. And uh, I want to say, as uh, from my own personal standpoint, what the message I seem to be getting uh, throughout the course of this conversation was what is the fundamental uh, human condition? We've all experienced loss, uh, grief, in one form or another, beyond just the loss of someone we cared very deeply for. And each instance, there's a portal, more or less, opens for us to explore and find the truth in that experience that will enable us to go on and, and actually continue growing, which is a natural process in life. However, Whenever it's stunted, uh, there's a disconnect that's developed. And, you know, the Buddhists call it suffering. Uh, uh, other conventional science talks about the level of stress in our society today, the feeling of hopelessness, the society which is tremendously dependent on uh, uh, mood-altering uh, medications of one kind or another. And they all seem to uh, paint a picture that uh, over the course of time, and this is evolution, change, of course, is always a, a constant, 
But I think people are arriving at the point where they seriously want to look into this issue of, you know, who I am. What, you know, why am I here? Why is all this happening? And how do I extract from this experience what it will take me to keep moving in a positive direction through the remaining years of my life? Because... Behind everything we do, there's a certain awareness that I'm going to die one day. You know, Ray, you said that really beautifully. I, I just, the great blessing of being in this work for 30-some years is that I've had the privilege of living my life through the lens of seeing people face ultimate reality every day. And um, because of that, I think I um, have appreciated um, moments in life, um, anticipated moments in life with a, a sharper edge and focus um, because I know that it in that moment it's a gift. And so many people... Um, are so transactional with their lives. They're, they're debit and credit based in their life. And whether it's their relationships with the employer or each other, what did I get for what I gave? And when we face loss, we really come to terms with the fact that it's what it is that we gave that transforms who we are. And that the, what we get in return from that is a life that is full, a life that is vital, and a life that is not limited. And for me, that's the great blessing that I've had in being a funeral director for 30-some years, is that I've, I've had the chance to view life through the lens of ultimate reality. And could I stick my head in the sand? Could I go out and uh, drink to cure my ails? You know, the, the challenges, I suppose it could have been fortunate not to do that. But I'm so grateful for having had this perch in life to share with others. Um, and obviously, time we've spent together today has been great. Carl, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up, but I certainly want to say uh, thank you, uh, for your uh, participation as a, a guest on the program today. I promise our listeners to flesh more of this out in the upcoming weeks. It is a grand topic, and from my uh, perspective, it couldn't be more timely. So we're going we're gonna to give folks, we're going to feed them as, as much as you allow us to in the upcoming weeks. But I'm going to close uh, this session for today and just say thank you, Thank you, thank you. I can't appreciate enough uh, your willingness to be a guest on our show today. You're welcome. Thank okay. you. Okay. Thank you all, and goodbye. <laughs>